Today we're going back to the first century, but we're living in the 21st century. And we're going to see how the 21st century and the first century, despite being, you know, 2,000 years apart, are still very much the same when it comes to humanity, when it comes to God's design, God's, you know, desire for family values, as well as God's desire for our lives to be in the workplace and how that works together. And so, yeah, the, the real question is, who here has a family? <laughs> right? <laughs> Hopefully everybody's awake now, like, yeah, I got a family, that makes sense. All right, who here works? <laughs> All right, yeah, everybody works, everybody's got a family. This is the sermon for us, right? This is it. So, yeah, praise the Lord. I just, dear Heavenly Father, this morning as we approach your word, I just ask that you, again, tune our hearts and our minds to your will, allow us to understand with a greater wisdom and knowledge uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit that we might see your incredible design as well as see and understand your grace for life. Because, Lord, many times we come across this first century culture and we don't completely understand it as well as we're torn and led astray by you know the culture of the world right now situations and circumstances that surround our lives but lord you have a plan you have a design you have a purpose so allow us to see that and your grace and your love and your mercy and cause us to praise and cause us to worship it's in jesus name we'll forever pray amen all right so I want you to know that this little passage in Colossians that we're going over today, chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1, is very similar and paralleled to Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 21, through chapter 6, verse 9. And it goes in much, much, much more detail to the letter to the Ephesians, but I believe that that's the case very simply because Paul had been to Ephesus and he knew these believers. Whereas, remember, Paul had never been to Colossae before. He was just kind of introducing himself. So if he, you know, went into much more detail in this section, then it might be more misleading to the hearers and listeners and be like, who is this Paul guy telling us what to do? You know, so that's where we're at in this. And the text itself says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, this first point, our family dynamic. It's pretty natural for us to be like, whoa, what's up with these first few verses here, 18 through 21? And I want you to see this first and foremost right off the bat. Look at verse 18 and look at verse 20. This is wives and the children verse, okay? It says, wives, submit to your husbands. It says, children, obey your parents and everything. And then there's a caveat at the end. There is, as is fitting in the Lord. 
for this pleases the Lord. Now, take that in contrast to what you see in verse 19 and 21. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. <laughs> Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. There's no caveat. There's just, there's just command and beating down. And here's why. And here's what we don't understand about the culture from the past. And so this, ultimately, what it is telling us and what it's showing us is that every human being on the planet has dignity and value. And let me explain and take you back to the first century to realize why, even though this may sound offensive in the 21st century, this was countercultural to the first century and actually gave dignity and respect to women, children, and slaves, as opposed to what it was originally, which is the paterfamilias. I was going to wear my shirt. I do have a shirt that says that, paterfamilias, and then I have it in the Batman logo where it says, I am the paterfamilias. And it came from my family as a present for Father's Day because I was learning about first century culture at my time at Moody Bible Institute, and I first heard about this paterfamilias. And this paterfamilias was this ridiculous head of the family that could do virtually anything. And so I copied some of this down and understand that in ancient Rome, this was a man's world. In politics, society, and family, men held both the power and the purse strings. They even decided whether a baby would live or die. Families were dominated by men. At the head of Roman family life was the oldest living male, who was the paterfamilias, or father of the family. He looked after the family's business affairs and property and could perform religious rites on their behalf. It was the father's legal duty to guard the welfare under his authority, and it was the family's duty to show him total obedience and loyalty. Well, let's go on. For the women of this time, women did not receive education except domestic arts, housekeeping in a sense, how to raise a family, which made them rely on men more for their needs and what they needed. So wives were not wives necessarily for love, they were to take care of the home and household affairs and raise heirs to my family for me to help run the family, especially preferably sons. So going on to think about children in this context, the paterfamilias had absolute rule over his household and children. If they angered him, he had the legal right to disown his children to sell them into slavery, or even kill them. And this could be as long, like, I'm 43 years old. If my dad was alive and I had irritated my dad, even at 43 year old, not living at his house, he could still have me put to death under Roman law and the culture of that time. Scary. <laughs> After birth, the midwife placed the babies on the ground. And only if the paterfamilias picked up that child was that child accepted into the family. If not, those babies that were not picked up, they were ousted. They were put on the curb, left to be picked up and taken into slavery. Oh, 
this tough stuff. And even babies accepted into the household by the paterfamilias had a tough start in life. About 25% of babies in the first century did not survive their first year, and up to half of all children would die before the age of 10. So, in context of family too, we have the nuclear family. We have the 2.5 children, if you will. There's the husband, there's the wife, there's hopefully the son, there's hopefully the daughter, and that is the perfect family in today's society. But in contrast to that, Roman families consisted of a father, a mother, children, foster children, the slaves, unmarried friends, or extended family, freedmen, renters, and sometimes your brother's family would come and live here with too. And this, again, is all under one roof. They're living this family life with one paterfamilias, legal standing citizen, to rule over them all. But, again, the bridge and the context here. First century, family values were very important. They did have those big families and those extended families. And hopefully the paterfamilias was not a dominant jerk. Hopefully he had some of his family's best interests in mind. But you see from this text too that not necessarily always the case because in ancient Rome, Men were taught to rule, not to love, not to have that emotion. So this bridge, what is the duty to the family? What is my duty to the family? Is perhaps what could be considered you know, a, a great question that the people would ask at that time. So Paul here in this brief text, these four verses, gives a, a list of quote-unquote mutual obligations that each member has to shoulder to maintain a family smooth functioning. Now fast forward to this time. And we live in a very self-centered culture that focuses on us as individuals and individual rights. So our question, instead of what is my duty to the family, we probably ask the question, what does my family owe me? Why am I here? What can they do for me? Why do I even stay here with them? Why do I, you know, love them? And for children, it's, well, parents provide things for them. But as time goes on, and even as you see culture today, uh, men and women are on a different level, which, which is good. It's not egalitarian. It's complementary to one another. But what the family owes me, and what you see out of both of these ways, is that there are broken family values based on culture. Completely broken family values based on culture. Whether it's oppressive from the first century or it's, you know, more self-centered and individualistic, it doesn't, it doesn't hold that family value where they care for one another, build one another up. But here's the question, of course. Who created the family? And that's obvious. Now it's God. God created the family. Even right now, we are a family called the church. This is God's family of sons and daughters that he has adopted to be a part of his kingdom. Where, whereas the devil has left us on the ground and not picked us up to be part of you know, his family because he just wants our destruction, God has picked us up and brought us into his amazing care to be a part of his family. And that's who we are as the church. But again, is this not countercultural? this text, this passage, both in the 
21st century and the 21st century? The answer is yes. It is quite countercultural because this says that the family has values. This says that there's a purpose for us to be part of the family. And so we see some of these harsh words that are, that are in this. Submit, right? Submit to your husbands. But don't forget the caveat, as is fitting to the Lord. Submission is very different than obedience, okay? <laughs> very, 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 very different. Uh, Jennifer would not do, <laughs> you know, a bunch of different things that I would tell her to do because it wouldn't be fitting with the Lord. I keep having this thing in my, my head from a long time, and I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was the one where it's like, I'll sleep with your wife for a million dollars, right? Like, that's culturally wrong. Okay, and it shows that the money was more important than the relationship that the couple had with one another. And that seems to be a lot of what is going on too in the submission in a sense, as is fitting to the Lord. What's honorable for Christ? And you see this going on in the next section where he talks about um, working, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and for men, for it is Christ that you're serving. And so we have a place within the family, we have a place within our workplace, but what is Christ's, you know, how is he glorified in everything that we do? And so the whole act of submission is to be on mission for them. And I use work as an example because it only makes sense. We all said we work, right? Well, do you have a boss? You know, do you have a, you have a higher up, someone who's over you in a sense? And then are you on mission with the company or are you bucking like that salmon going upstream? Like, I don't like the way you do it, but I work here and I'm going to cause trouble. No, the truth of the matter is you submit. Your on goal, your mission is with that company. Just the same as in a family, family mission hopefully should be peace and love and joy and raising children and and sharing lives with other people and being a part of the church and so many other different things that we make it about. But at the same time, at the core value, this is all Christ church. Christ created the family, family dynamic, father, son, spirit. So in a sense, it's, it's like that first century thing that was extended and part of it. Either way, and love. We see the word love in verse 19 that the men are supposed to do, and to not be harsh. But this love, this agape, the sacrifice of self for the well-being of others, not my own individual power, is completely countercultural. Again, culture said to rule, but Christ says to love, or Paul says to love. And also remember in this what Paul was combating in chapter 2, if you see verse 8, you'll see that he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul was always going to combat some of what the world says because it's quite different and, again, countercultural from who God is and what his original design, his original plans for life were. And so to obey, again, to respect what has been asked of you because you know it is the right thing to do and you know that the asker has your best interest in mind. 
But again, this obeying only if it's pleasing to the Lord. So in all of this, though, you see that it's tied together by love and that there is no better place to practice what Paul says is growing within us as we die to the old self from last week and put on the new self. Look at verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord's forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So where can you think of, for a better place to practice reconciliation and forgiveness and to grow in compassion than within the family unit and the family structure? And for us, we have our own immediate families. And then we also have the church, the family of God. And both of these are avenues in which God is going to use in order to build us up, to sanctify us, to continue to make us holy into Christ's likeness at this time. So he's furthering the main idea of the letter here in chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. I told you about the warning of philosophy, but remember why Paul wrote this all in the first place too. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So what Paul is saying here in these verses is things that culture had taught them, but he's teaching them God's design of it too in this. And he added those caveats of being fitting in the Lord. And um, again, lest they become discouraged, for this pleases the Lord. Those, again, the women and the children, I read about the paterfamilias and the family values. Like, women and children didn't have a lot of rights. They didn't have a lot of responsibilities. They weren't educated. They were sold off into marriage sometimes. Uh, children were sold off. All of these things. But you see that there's a value of human beings in God and his design. And it doesn't matter your workstation, or it doesn't matter your, your race, or you know, socioeconomic status, or ethnicity, or anything like that. The church is multicultural, multi-ethnic, and it doesn't matter about any of your past, per se. It's about God's saving grace in his future. And so to see this love, to see this growth, to understand that, it's the most important sphere of influence in our lives. Think about it this way. When, when Christ first saves you, when you first you know, see the light, so to speak, and you realize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, where do you go? Where do you go? You go home. <laughs> that's where you go. And that's where you're first tested. That's where you're first challenged in a sense. That's where you're going to grow passion and humility and awareness and forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation because the family is really important to God and we can see that. So understand that God's everlasting love from this very first little section changes our relationships, especially our family dynamics. Like we see this. This isn't us, right? This is God and God's work. You know, one of the best uh, examples that I heard, kind of saw of this week was, if you remember those iron filings that used to just make a mess, and then you'd have those, those magnets that would run away from 
the top of it, and it would almost like organize the magnet. That's kind of God's working in our lives because we're that iron filing mess that's going this way and that way. We don't know whether we're coming or going. The culture of the world today says to be afraid, but don't be afraid. Okay. <laughs> that's easy to do, right? No, it's not easy in the way. So God's sanctification and his changing organizes and straightens out some of these things. And if you think about the great commission or you know the great commission, go. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to be obedient always to the end of the age. But the, the, the key verb here is to go. That's the first place that you go after coming to Christ, after dying to the old self and putting on the new self, is your family. Then we hit the second one. <laughs> the second one. So God's everlasting love changes our relationships, especially in our family dynamics. But... He also changes our work. So this section, while it may seem utterly about slavery, understand, again, the culture and the context, and, and we're really not any different today than we were. Like, wait a minute. That can't be the case. But listen to this. Bond servants. There were approximately 2 million slaves in Italy alone at the time that Paul wrote this letter. One slave for every three people. 25% of the population were in slavery. People became slaves by being captured in war, being kidnapped. Makes sense. Unwanted children left exposed by the paterfamilias were taken to become slaves, and children born to slaves became slaves. Here's what's interesting. Convicted criminals and those unable to pay back their debt could become slaves willingly. Willingly. Remember that. <laughs> Willingly. So slaves were considered personal property and could be bought and sold. Slavery was not racial as it was in the Middle East, nor were they necessarily uneducated. Some slaves, this is really important, this in this list, were tutors and teachers. Some slaves cooked. Some slaves cleaned. Some slaves built buildings and roads. Some slaves cut and styled hair, they did laundry, they made clothes, and even some slaves managed financial affairs. If you've ever done one of these jobs, you're a bond servant. That's not what, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Here's the thing. When we look at slaves and we think of slaves and this, tell me, in the first century, did slaves have more? Did slaves have values? Or were they treated as less than human beings? I'm going to go with that last answer. They were treated as less than human beings. And you could see that in this. And especially how they became slaves. And then especially how people willingly, sometimes to pay off debts or to get out of jail, willingly became slaves of another person. So they were treated less than human beings. One of the wonders, again, of early Christianity is the ability to transcend or accept people of all genders, races, and socioeconomic classes. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then look what Paul says earlier on in 
chapter 3 as well, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Again, Christianity is completely countercultural, both in the first century as well as the 21st century, to the dynamics of how we feel that life should be run. So we need to learn about God. We need to learn about his ways and understand his ways. And also, do you remember about 10 weeks ago what book of the Bible we were going through? Philemon? Anybody remember Philemon? Anybody remember the story of Philemon? What was going on? Do you know who Onesimus is? You'll see him in the, you know, the next chapter that he was one of the people writing this letter. Why do you think there's so much talk here about servants and slaves? It might have to do with the fact that Onesimus was with Paul and going back to Philemon at this time, who was a slave master, or, or, you know, and Onesimus was the bondservant. And so we see that that's why in the letter to Colossians, as opposed to Ephesians, you see so much more conversation about what it means to be a bondservant and how to treat those that are in and under your care. And so... We see that, and we see to obey with sincerity, not with eye-pleasing, not with anything other than sincerity of heart for the Lord. And why is that? It's because Jesus changes lives. That's, that's first and foremost, is that Jesus changes lives in all of this. And it didn't matter that you were born a slave or a slave because that identity of being a slave was nullified when you became a son daughter of the Lord Most High. Whatever transgressions, whatever forgiveness that could not be forgiven has been forgiven in Christ. So while Onesimus ran away from Philemon for reasons we have no idea, you know, maybe Philemon was a cruel man, but we also see that Philemon was a believer. So maybe before he had been this cruel tyrant or a paterfamilias of the first century, he was being changed by God to not be so harsh and so cruel with him and the children and the slaves in his life, but maybe at the same time, too, we don't know. <laughs> Long story short. So this obeying with sincerity, again, this new calling, this new life, this being a son and daughter of the Lord Most High, and what we talked about in the first four verses of putting on your new self, and that you have died to self, you have been raised with Christ, and how baptism is symbolic of this, you know, death, this spiritual death, and how the spiritual reality of who you are far takes precedence, because the spiritual reality of who you are is eternal, whereas the reality of who you are right here and right now, it's all temporal. Have any of you been riding high, been king of the world, queen of the universe, feeling real good about yourself, and then next thing you know, you got your legs cut out from under you. Something catastrophic happens in your life, and you're just left there stunned and wondering what on earth is going on. You know, you've got a job for a long time, you're building yourself up, next thing you know, you're laid off, and you're like, whoa, everything in this world is temporary. But God is eternal. His salvation is eternal. The forgiveness is eternal. The redemption is eternal. Everything about him speaks volumes. And this identity that we have in the spiritual world far supersedes that of who we are 
to the eternal. Not to ignore, or not to be part of the family, or not to work as if we should ignore these things and ignore these values, but just to see what Christ has done. And that, that sincerity and that obedience comes from a life that's been changed in Christ. So we talked briefly about submission. Again, being in Christ is to be on mission for Christ, which is that great commission to go, therefore, and tell people about the good news of what Christ has done for us in our lives. This love, this agape, that's exemplified in the Son, Jesus. That love that while we were still sinners, while we were at enmity with God, while we still hated Him and were angry with that Christ Jesus died for us in that time. That's that sacrificial type of love that they're talking about that's going to grow within us. And then obedience. Jesus says, um, uh, if, if you know my commandments, if, if, if you're obedient to these, you, they will know that you are my disciples and that there is love. So, look at verse 23 as well in this. You'll, you'll see this. I'm trying to bridge a lot of what's going on in the text from what's happened to what's now as well. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So from verse 23, go up to verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now flip back a couple chapters to chapter 1 and see verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord as he, as he ties this together too, as Paul writes this letter to a church that he's never been to in a small farming community that's overshadowed by Odyssea and Hierapolis, two much larger cities, maybe similar to Rockford or DeKalb, but to still see that the people living here have value and worth. They're still his church. They're still his people. And we see that inheritance. We see that whatever we do, there's that freedom. Whatever you do, there's not, you have to do it this way. It's not moralism. It's not legalism. It's not obligation to earn his righteousness. It is whatever you do, not to be lawless. That's the same thing, but glorify God. Live that life that glorifies Jesus. For we see, and we go to the end of that, and masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Not only do we have a master in heaven, we have a father in heaven. And we have a father in heaven because we have grace from a relationship with a father and a son that allowed us to become sons and daughters of the best paterfamilias in the universe. The best lawgiver, the best father that we could ever have, and the best master that we could ever I don't want us to look at God as some rule giver who you know, crushes us and undermines us, but to see that love of God in this passage and to see how he cares about family members, 
to see how he cares about your experiences at the workplace, to see that he cares for you as a whole, and that while he is that paid for he did pick you up off the ground, chose you, and allowed you to be on his team. And we're not kicked to the curb. We're not slaves anymore to the culture of the world. We're not slaves anymore to the sin of our lives that allow us to put down others while trying to boost ourselves. And so while culturally today, this text may seem old and outdated, especially when it appears to be a list of commands for the family, masters and slaves of the early first century. But on the contrary, it highlights this love of God and this value and respect that God has for all people. Again, not by race, not by ethnicity, not by socioeconomic status, but this love of God for all people. Like, not all people are his children, let's be real, but he does have a for all people. And there is common grace. There's common unmerited favor from God. But this also changes and it tells us of the changes of the new self and what to look for and where you're going to go. Your first sphere of influence is your family. After Christ changes your life, you see that he's the way, the truth, and the life. You go back to your family. You also, we all have to work. You might actually say we were created for work. But not all people acknowledge that, even though that is the spiritual and biblical truth that we were created originally to tend the garden of Eden as Adam and Eve did. But unfortunately, work has been twisted, family life has been twisted, everything has been twisted. But God untwists those. He goes over your life like that strong magnet that aligns values and changes values because you see that it is good. It is not that you know obedience, as I talked about it, this obedience comes from a knowing that God is sovereign and that God does have my best intentions in mind. I want to honor him and I want to glorify him. It's not that I have to, to earn righteousness, but at the same time, it's not that I'm going to be lawless and continue to delve in whatever muck and drivel that existed before coming to Christ in the first place. And so, we see that this new self in Christ and the family in the workplace because of God's love and the Holy Spirit working in our lives shows that family life's important. Yet it has a design and a desire for it. And the current family of God naturally is called the church. And so work is something we do, something we are made for. And these two ministry spheres that we all have, like God, you know, tells us to do ministry, right? To go therefore. But he's given us spheres of influence. He's given us opportunities for ministry too. God's blessed us in many ways that I don't think we necessarily know how he's blessed us. And so while these are you know, present in everybody's lives, we need to understand that God is going to work within us, within these spheres, to build verse 312 within us, to build those compassionate hearts, to learn how to forgive, to learn how to reconcile. And so it's also the fruit of the Spirit. And there's no better place to practice these things than within your family, within the church family, and within wherever you work in. So praise the Lord that he's given us all these opportunities. Praise the Lord that he stands up for people and cares for people. You know, in fact, the Bible even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that God chose what is weak 
and what is foolish, to shame what's strong in the world. And so if you can embrace that, that we might be weak and that we might be foolish, but also embrace that we are ridiculously loved and ridiculously forgiven, and we will be with God forever. So the sooner we can embrace this, this calling, this new self, this putting to death the old self, the only desires, whatever we want within us, our egocentric nature, and that we can live for another. And then that newness of responsibility, that life hidden with Christ that we talked about a couple weeks ago too, in chapter 3, verse 3, that our measure of worth is not what the world says, it's what our God says. And that is amazing news, especially in this nutty time that we're in. So, dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that you actually care for us, that you actually, you know, shows what is weak and what is foolish to shame the wise and to confound them. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us it is the eternal everlasting truth of you, God. And so, Lord, from this, encourage us. Keep encouraging us. Let us not see what the world says that we are, but allow us to see rightly everything that you say we are. And allow us to go forward and continue to kill that old self, kill that sin as you would, and continue to grow righteousness within us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might be compassionate to others, that we might be able to forgive, that we might be able to reconcile. Because, Lord, you've given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's why you came down in the first place, to bring a sinful human being and a holy God together to be reconciled to a right relationship. So, Lord, continue to use us well, continue to love us, and continue to shower us with your grace and mercy, because without it, I have no idea how this world has any hope. So, Lord, love you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.